You are a happy group. This is this has been fun. Can you hear me? One time in Massachusetts, I said, "Can you hear me?" And someone yelled, "We can hear you, but we can't understand you." <laughs> can you understand me? <laughs> My name is Blanche, and I am a grateful member of a worldwide fellowship called Alanon High. And I have been a member of the Aldon family groups since July 7, 1964, but I have been addicted to mood-changing, mind-altering men ever since I can remember. <laughs> 31 years makes me a survivor, not a savior. And I say that because I need to remind myself on a daily basis that I am one person away from an obsession at all times. <laughs> I would be remiss in my good manners if I did not thank the committee for the invitation. It's an honor to share Al-Anon anywhere. And I've only been to Wyoming one other time. That was 10 years ago. Was it something I said? I don't know. <laughs> and for the flowers and the snacks in my room and your warm hospitality, I have felt right at home. I was in uh, Taos, New Mexico a couple of years ago, and they were selling buttons that said, a good convention is like an orgy. When it's over, you don't know who made you feel good. <laughs> I almost didn't say that. <laughs> but hey, I'm going home tomorrow. You <laughs> I just thought it was funny. I thought I'd tell you. <laughs> I have been trying for a very long time when I am allowed to share my program somewhere to be as open and as vulnerable as I know how to be. See, it would be easier to tell you what I think than how I feel. It would be easier for me to lecture about the program than to tell you about myself. And I don't want to lecture. I want to share with you. I learned from you that that which does not come from the heart does not reach the heart. I very much want to reach your hearts tonight, so I will talk to you from mine. And because you told me it's all right to ask for what I want and need, I need for you to please love me back while I'm talking. Anyone standing on this podium is pretty vulnerable, you know. We're pretty emotionally naked when we're being honest. And I would like to feel from you some uh, okayness, you know, something to tell me that's all right. And I've learned to ask for that. After all, I came here to participate in your weekend and not to perform. And as pious as this sounds, I would rather you leave the saying to each other, what a marvelous program, than what a marvelous speaker. I never talk without having a few notes in front of me. Uh, that works for me. If you have a problem with it, I suggest you call your sponsor and discuss acceptance. <laughs> I know that God can tell me what to say. But he isn't limited to doing that the minute I step up here. I've known for a year I was coming. I mean, it would be foolish for me to get here and tell you I didn't know what I was going to say. I know what I hope I'm going to say. And it's a little bit of security for me to have a few notes. I came into Al-Anon kicking, screaming, clutching my halo, wrapping my robes of righteousness about me, and telling everyone who would listen and a lot of people who didn't care that I was fine. Thank you. And if we had sobriety at our house, we'd have no problems. I can't say it with a straight face 
tonight, but I believed it then, you know. What I know about Al-Anon principles tonight, I know not because someone read them to me, recited them to me, but because they were practiced, these principles were, lovingly and tenderly on me, by a group of people who loved me when I was unlovable and who tolerated me when I was condescending and patronizing and pretty well intolerable. A group of people who loved me until I could love myself. I began to uh, catch on to what Al-Anon was not before I learned what it was. I learned that it's not a ladies' auxiliary, that it's not a stitch and bitch club, you know. <laughs> not a coffee clatch. These were people who were serious about recovery. Uh, you may not have this trouble in Wyoming, but we do in Texas, and I always try to mention it. There are well-meaning members of AA, and I think they just haven't thought it through, who refer to any non-alcoholic in their family as an Al-Anon. That's like referring to a still-drinking alcoholic as a member of AA. So just for our purposes tonight, an Al-Anon is a member of an Al-Anon family group who has a sponsor, reads the literature, shares her program. Uh, if, you, if you find someone else talking about Al-Anon, don't listen. Those people are uninformed. They're not carrying the message. They are spreading the disease. Anyway, I learned that we were not cookie bakers and coffee makers, and above all, we are not AA groupies. Uh, <laughs> and we have never claimed to be a therapeutic tool for the treatment of alcoholism. Al-Anon doesn't propose to save marriages, only sanity, and I thought both of those were in good shape when I got to you, but I live to learn better than that. Happily ever after may not mean walking hand in hand into the sunset together. Happily ever after means my personal recovery. And so I have a success story to share with you tonight. This program is for me. And for those of you in AA, Al-Anon is not the enemy. We loved you, oh, and we loved you, and we loved you, and sometimes when you were less than lovable. And I delight in this weekend because you are people, obviously, who rejoice in what you share, which is your recovery, and not in your differences. I don't find that everywhere, and I want you to know that I'm aware of it and grateful for it. Well, the analogy that I always use is my mother's illness and death. Um, usually I can get through it. It's been a long time. It's been over 30 years. You'd think I could talk about it. So most of the time I can. My mother was in Florida. I was in Texas. And the last six months of her life, I was able to see her four times. And the very last time I was there, I knew it would be the last time. And I had stepped out into the hall because I was crying so hard. And a woman in the room across from my mother's room beckoned me. I don't know how she knew who I was, but she beckoned me into her room. I've never seen her before or since. And she said, your mother's going to be all right. And I said, oh, you don't understand. Her illness is terminal. And she said, I didn't say she'd get well. I said she'd be all right. And my mother did not get well, and she's been all right ever since. Now, it's very much as if, when I got to you, it's very much as if you had said to me, you're going to be all right. And if you had, I would have said, oh, you don't understand, I have a barely sober husband. And you would have said, oh, we didn't promise you a sober husband, we said, you're going to be all right. Or I would have said, I have a very fragile, shaky marriage. 
And you would have said, oh, we didn't promise you a marriage. We said you're going to be all right. Because at some level, that's what I heard. And I have been, you know. And better than that, I know that I will be. Well, our literature tells us how to make an Al-Anon talk. I'm going to memorize it any year now, but uh, it says, <laughs> Al-Anon talks can be and too often are merely a repetition of past and present sorrows. Now, sketching the background is important and has its place, but it's merely the foundation of the talk. The best Al-Anon talk, the one that helps the most people to the highest degree, is the one which brings out just how the program works and just how the speaker follows it. A good talk is divided into three parts, how sick I was, how well I am, what helped me to get well. Of these three, the emphasis should be on what helped me to get well. And I always agree with Father Martin, who says that when he's sitting out there and you're up here, he says, you're playing with my life. Don't tell me how sick you were without telling me how well you are. And so I hope to spend the majority of the time I have with you tonight sharing with you the things that have helped me to get as well as I am anyway. I was born on my grandmother's farm in northeast Florida, just below the Georgia border, on Christmas Day, and I no longer say uh, which year. I have uh, reached the point that I not only lie about my age, but I forget what I've said that it was. And so, <laughs> I will tell you that uh, my family now has been in Florida for seven generations. We've been there for four generations when I was born. We were not tourists. Tourist was a bad word. Anytime I behaved in a manner my mother considered inappropriate, she said, don't act like a tourist. You know? <laughs> and uh, I find that native Floridians are sort of rare, but I certainly am one, was one. Um, about my age, I often say I'm somewhere between Blue Lagoon and on Golden Pond. <laughs> we lived in Jacksonville, which is on the Atlantic Ocean and the Georgia border, until I was 10, and then we lived in Pensacola, which is on the Gulf of Mexico, and the Alabama border. I could ride my bicycle into Alabama, and often did. Uh, lived there until I married and moved away. I think of Pensacola as my hometown because I lived there the longest and because it's the town I went back to all those years that I was taking the children, you know, back to see their grandparents. It was a wonderful place to grow up. It was, a, it was long before the tourists found it. <laughs> it was a beautiful city about that big blue gulf. I still miss the blue water and the white sand, and I get back nearly every year. I have a, a little container of sand from Pensacola Beach on my kitchen windowsill, and people say to me, why do you keep sugar on your windowsill? And I explain to them that's not quite what it is. Well, when we were in Jacksonville, those early years, my father was alcoholic. He was unfortunately violent. Um, I was never, thank God, sexually abused, but I was a very badly battered child. It was a long time before I could say that at a microphone, and it needs saying. It isn't that uncommon in an alcoholic home, and let me say quickly, it isn't always the alcoholic who does the battering. It just happened to be that way at my house. We lived in grinding and abject 
poverty. This was during the Depression. We had, uh, I don't mean no luxuries, I mean not enough food. I mean not enough clothing, insufficient shelter. And even living where we did, in a very blighted area of the city, the neighborhood children were not allowed to play with me. I understand now that their parents were apprehensive about what was going on in my house. But when you're four and five and six years old, you don't know that. And I just felt rejection and rage. And I didn't verbalize it. I couldn't at that age. But I know now what I was thinking was, I'll show them. And I did. We went to the same neighborhood school, and I beat the socks off all of them. And I loved every minute of it. (laughs) Now, that may not be a good motivation, but it had a good byproduct. I absolutely fell in love with learning. And I've never fallen out of love with it. One of the most exciting things I encounter today is a new idea. And the older you get, the fewer of them there are, you know. <laughs> my, uh, my mother and father were divorced when I was eight, and my mother remarried when I was ten, a man that, as it happened, didn't drink at all. We were never close, he and I, but he loved my mother, and so did I, and that's really all I asked of him. We had our necessities, food, shelter, clothing. No luxuries in college was considered a luxury. And I wanted to go to Baylor University, which happens to be in Texas, and uh, it is now, as it was then, a very expensive private university. My mother talked to me about this. She said a few things to remember. One is you've got to pay for this yourself, and uh, that was before the days of student loans, you know, back before the earth cooled. It was a long time ago. And uh, I knew that I would. And she said uh, not only that, Make up your mind that you'll spend the rest of your life in Texas because, she said, you'll end up marrying a Texan and they don't transplant. And I I told her I was going to do no such thing, but I did and they don't and I have. And so she was right about that as she was everything. I probably don't have to explain to you that Texas is a state of mind. Uh, See, they've never forgotten that they were once a nation. And that's the kind of pride that they feel. That's true of the whole South. We've never forgotten that we were a nation, however briefly. And it's a connection. I don't know how to explain it to you, but it's very strong and it's there. It comes out a little later in my story that I was a counselor in a little country school. I had kindergarten through 12th grade. And the children in the elementary school there, when they pledge allegiance to the American flag every morning, then turn and pledge allegiance to the Texas flag. little different wording. I will spare you the wording. but I used to think that was a bit much. And you know what? I decided that it's all right to love where you live. I hope you love where you live. I mean, I love where I live. And I grant you that sometimes in Texas it gets carried to a bit of an extreme. We have bumper stickers that say on earth as it is in Texas. <laughs> but I think mostly we just have a lot of fun with it. Uh, until very recently, we had a governor and a lieutenant governor who were, by their own admission, recovering alcoholics. My husband used to say that made everyone in the state of Texas eligible for al <laughs> We were all being influenced by, affected by, alcoholics. It was inevitable that I marry an alcoholic. But I want you to know I tried not to. 
I did not want to suffer as I had seen my mother suffer, and so I just didn't date anyone who drank. Now, you'd think that'd be a guarantee, wouldn't you? That wasn't too hard at Baylor. It's sort of a Baptist convent, but I really had never, had never seen Charles take a drink. I don't think he ever had when we married. Um, that does something for your guilt later on, by the way. <laughs> but other people say, well, he didn't drink till he married you. <laughs> but you explained to me that drinking is only a symptom of the illness. And it's as if he had had tuberculosis and he had not yet started hemorrhaging. You see, that particular symptom of his illness had not yet manifested. But it was certainly there. I know now, because you taught me, that I had no feeling of self-worth other than by taking care of people, rescuing people, and having them dependent on me. So, of course, I found someone who would give me an opportunity to do that regularly. I know tonight that we had matching illnesses, matching neuroses, and we nourished these in each other for a very long time. Sick people marry sick people and they rear sick children. And I hope you won't let anyone tell you anything different. We lived in Corpus Christi for a year and in San Antonio for four years. Our babies were born there. It's the most beautiful city in Texas. If you have a chance to be there, don't miss San Antonio. Then we moved out to West Texas to my husband's hometown, Odessa. West Texas is a semi-desert. My mother used to call it Odessalate, but... <laughs> She thought I had moved to the end of the world. <laughs> I never got used to the barrenness or the sandstorms and the dust. Sometimes you couldn't see the hood of your car with the sandstorms. And uh, I loved those people. Now, I have a theory, totally unsubstantiated, and you fit in here too, that people who live in inhospitable, unforgiving climates develop a stamina and a a can-do kind of attitude that I don't find everywhere else. But I sense it in you. I can look at you and see you crossing the plains in a covered wagon. <laughs> you, you are a stalwart group. And I feel it in North and South Dakota and in Montana. Those are the places that come to mind where I feel it most strongly. And in West Texas, those wonderful people didn't know there was anything they couldn't do, and so they did it. And I'm so grateful that's where we were when we got our sickest. And that's where we were when we found you. Because at least then, I don't know what it's like now, this was a strong, enthusiastic pocket of Aladon and AA. I had some slogans that I used to live by when Charles was drinking. I don't know whether any of you had these, but you hadn't given me different slogans yet. One of them was, what will people think? Do you, did you have that one? <laughs> don't rock the boat. How about it's not that bad yet? Did you ever play Guess What I'm Mad About? I thought so. My husband Charles used to say that I could ask him a question, answer it myself, and go away mad. Not true, of course. I did all the wrong things during the years that he drank, and I kept on doing them. They didn't work. That didn't stop me. I used to have a cleaning woman who uh, loved football. In Texas, 
I don't know how to tell you how important football is in Texas. It's second only to oxygen, okay? <laughs> and some days I wonder. <laughs> um, we are all pretty rabid football fans, and uh, she certainly was, and when she ironed in football season, she would watch football, and she never caught on to instant replay. And she would say, maybe this time he'll catch it. <laughs> and I thought, that's what I was like. It was just instant replay. It had never worked before, but hey, maybe this time, you know. <laughs> so I protected him and lied for him and rescued him, and I played Let's Pretend as obsessively as he was compelled to drink. He was almost literally loved to death, and that can happen. Now, I would like you to think that I stayed with him out of love and loyalty. I did not. I stayed with him out of pride, and when I'm this far from home, I have to explain that a little. I don't know how they do it now, but uh, North Florida was, and still is, pretty southern. It used to be totally southern. And South Florida is pretty northern. And I grew up, as I told you, on the borders of Georgia and Alabama, and Women of my generation were given a specific kind of upbringing in the Deep South at that time. Uh, the pride meant that at our poorest, in the Depression, we had cloth napkins. They were patched, but we had cloth napkins. It means that I never go anywhere without a handkerchief, and they have to be ironed, you know? And I was taught some things that aren't bad in themselves, but they didn't go far enough. I was taught you keep the men happy, and everything else falls into place. Well, now. I can't argue with that. They are still, you know, the ones in power so far. But <laughs> I wish they had said <laughs> I wish they had said to me, you don't give up big chunks of your own personhood to do that. And I uh I and I didn't ever hear that. So it was a long time learning it. I was taught by precept and example, Blanche Marie, repeat after me. That a southern woman was a lady in the parlor, a wizard in the kitchen, a hussy in the bedroom. There's nothing wrong with that. If they had said, it's not God's assignment to anyone on earth to make you happy. It's up to you to see that your needs are filled. See, we, we were expected to flutter our eyelashes and swish our skirts and flash our dimples, but it was understood that we were made of steel and we could cope. And I, uh, I heard the term steel magnolia long before it was ever a play and a movie. And with that kind of upbringing, you don't leave your husband. So you try harder. You get the Charlie Brown cartoon strip up here. And one of them, Charlie Brown, is helping his sister, Sally, with long division. And she says, how many times will 24 go into 12? And he says, 24 won't go into 12. And she says, it will if you push. <laughs> that was my attitude. I will just try harder. This was the only thing in my life I hadn't been able to fix. See, I had a very inauspicious beginning. And I had attended and paid for it myself, an expensive university, and I think I got a splendid education there. I had married the man I wanted, who was brilliant and handsome and could be charming. I had the children I wanted when I wanted them. I had a career that I loved and at which I excelled. And I didn't understand people who messed up their lives. My thinking was that if I could cope, anybody could. No, no understanding of nor tolerance for people who messed up their lives. And it was years later that I had a sponsor who said to me over and over, Blanche, we are not morally superior to sick people. Over and over. 
And I believe that I believe that today. Well, I did a few things right during those years. I used to think by accident, I know now by the grace of God, I never called him a drunk. I never thought of him as a drunk. I was married to a very fine man who drank too much. At some level, I knew he was sick. That is, I knew he wouldn't be this way if he could help it. I knew this wasn't his true self, his, his essence at all. And I had a God whom I worshipped and served. Even then, not God as I understand him tonight, thank goodness, but a God in whom I believed. And I had a doctor. He was our family doctor, but he was my Al-Anon before I got to you. And I say that because he used to say, listen, you've got to do what's necessary for your own sanity and serenity regardless. And then he knew just which button to push. He would say, your children need one stable parent. It was the word need that gets me. I still have to watch that. (laughs) Because if you need me, I'm putty in your hands. He uh, wrote on a prescription pad that I should return to teaching school. I had taught before my babies were born, but I was... I was privileged that I could stay home with them for 11, 12 years. And they were both in school a long time now. I used to tell my high school kids they were a prescription, a doctor's prescription. I'm not spontaneous. I wish I were. I've worked my way up to flexible, but I'll never make frivolous, you know. (laughs) So I thought about this for a year. And then I did return to teaching, and I taught English to high school juniors in a very fine very affluent high school, an absolutely splendid school. It was the thing I hated most to leave when I left West Texas. I loved teaching and I loved the kids and it wasn't one long honeymoon. There were days when I wished for retroactive birth control, but not usually. And it was a, they were a gift in my life. Charles never stopped trying to find an answer. We didn't know he was alcoholic. He didn't drink the way my father did. He wasn't violent, and he drank at home. So I never thought of alcoholism. I thought mental illness. And he went through every kind of source you can think of, ministers, clinics, you know, lay counselors, uh, both our local psychiatrists pretty quickly. We didn't know why he couldn't. Well, cope's the only word I know. He didn't lose a job because he worked for his father at that time. And, uh, And as I said, he drank at home, so he didn't get picked up by the police. Finally, a friend of his, a business acquaintance, suggested that he talk to a counselor in Odessa at that time. Uh, We didn't have them on every street corner, you know, as we do today. And she did family counseling, and she's the first person that said alcoholic. He went to see her, and it was January of 1964, and I was home from school for the Christmas holidays. Now, I know there are moments in your life that are so lucid, so graced, Did you remember every detail? You remember where you were and what it looked like? Well, I remember the carpet, the draperies, everything about the room when the phone rang. And I picked it up. She told me her name, which I recognized, of course, and she said, your husband is an alcoholic. This is a family illness. I need to talk to you, too. And all the deep south up ringing without the window, and I said, you're out of your mind, and hung up. (laughs) Now, I was brought up that if you don't like someone, you're kind but cool. And I wasn't either of those words, you know, in any of their meanings. Before I could leave the room, the phone rang again. When I picked it up before I could say hello, she said, don't hang up. I know what you've been through. Well, she couldn't know because I hadn't told anyone. (laughs) And I thought all the tears had long since been shed. And I stood there with that phone in my hand, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried. That was the first gift you gave me, and that was before I even got to you. 
someone who understood. Charles used to say I could cry reading telephone directory or a menu. Uh, not so. Supermarket openings are rather touching, don't you? I cry anytime I please. I cry at television commercials. The Kodak moments just rip my heart out. And Olympic Games, if someone gets a gold medal and they, they play his national anthem, well, I'm just a basket case. Anyway, it was this woman who sent us to you, and for six months I went only to open AA meetings. And if anyone had the questionable judgment to invite me to Al-Anon, I was kind but cool. And I explained that I hadn't done the drinking, and consequently I didn't need the therapy. Ah, <laughs> oh, boy. Um, July of that year, we went back to San Antonio. I told you we loved it. And Charles got drunk, and he said, I must never tell you it was a slip. It was a carefully planned drunk. We were listening to jazz on the landing on the river. It wasn't the longest drunk, nor the worst one. And I know now I wasn't surprised. For some reason, I didn't expect him to quit drinking. Don't you know that attitude helped him a lot? And it was... <laughs> I was so ignorant of everything connected with it that when we were driving back home, he said to me, I have got to tell my AA group about this. I'm due to get a six-month chip next week. And I said in my appalling ignorance, I won't tell anyone. And <laughs> he, uh, he explained to me that wasn't the name of the game, and I tell you that because it's what got my attention. In all the years we had been married, he had never once said to me, I was wrong, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. And in essence, he was going to say that to some people he had known six months. So I thought I'd go take another look at them. And there was a long about then that someone's invitation to come to Al-Anon reached me. Um, I have to tell you why, and I wish I didn't. It was someone I thought was as good as I was. It takes what it takes. And God sends us the people we need. This was a woman who had everything I considered important. She had beauty and breeding and brains and education and status and prestige and she still has everything I consider important. It's just a very different list tonight, and she became my, my first sponsor. We have a pamphlet in Al-Anon entitled Living with Sobriety, and it says that sobriety can be a welcome miracle, but it does not guarantee happiness. And Charles and I had a stormy, difficult time the first 18 months, two years. He was stark raving sober. He was very much aware of all my defects of character, he was no longer held back by guilt from mentioning them loudly and clearly and frequently. And you know, my fantasy I had to give up, the, uh, the denial, the fantasy that we are a normal family and we're okay and this isn't happening to us, you know. I have to tell you that I had married considerably above myself. Uh, Charles used to say, don't put it that way. I don't know any other way to put it. I had married into a fine old family that had money and prestige. And listen, there was nobody not allowed to play with me anymore. That was so important to me. And I thought if I went down there to that building with those people, I would lose that. And so I had some barriers. I really did. I had prayed for help. But I thought God was showing very poor taste. This wasn't at all what I had in mind, as you can imagine. And of course I was in bad shape. Of course I was. I was emotionally frozen for one thing. It's, um, this is something else I could not have verbalized while it was happening. 
but it's as if I had thought during those years that feelings had valves or faucets and I would turn off the one marked anger or the one marked self-pity or the one marked resentment and what I didn't know was there's one valve it's marked feelings and so I just shut them off and you above all people ought to know that it hurts when feeling comes back into something that's been frozen and so for a long time while you were loving me back into being thawed and feeling I would hurt in a new place and I would realize it was a little pocket of feeling that was still frozen people get to us with defenses and I put battering at these defenses you know I used to let me in I want to be your friend I think that's kind of an emotional rape I don't do that anymore what I know is I got to you as if I were encased in armor and with a sword to protect with a, a shield to protect myself and a sword because I was so hostile and so angry and I see new people come in like that and I remember how it worked for me when I looked out from the chink in my armor you know the natives were friendly <laughs> eventually I thought I can put down this sword no one's going to hurt me here and then when I felt safe enough I could even put down the shield I hope that's the way it has happened for you it did for me I began to hear the program not all at once and not just from one person let me tell you that in 1964 alcoholism was not trendy it wasn't the stylish thing to be in a 12-step program there was a terrible stigma attached there were not treatment centers on every corner because insurance wouldn't pay for it and there were not announcements every 30 minutes on television and it was not uh, it was not even suspected that the family was sick too nobody knew that I mentioned being a counselor in a little country school I was visiting with a first grader I was taking him back to his classroom this was a few years ago and he said my teacher's not here today I said yes I noticed he said, she's sick. I said, yeah. He said, they sent another teacher. I said, they sure did. And he said, when I'm sick, they don't send another little boy. <laughs> and I thought, oh, darling, the times you'll wish you could send someone else to do it for you, you know. Well, they didn't send another sick candidate for Al-Anon into the program for me either. And I had to learn recovery. I had to do it myself. And I had people who loved me and who helped me and who were always there for me. But nobody can learn for you and nobody can recover for you. We don't hear the answer till we've asked the question. And I got into Al-Anon knowing all the answers. So I didn't ask any questions. You now you can't teach someone who knows it all, as they told me gently. <laughs> My sponsor said, can you give up some of these old ideas? They're really keeping you from hearing what we have to tell you. She said, uh, God can only fill an empty vessel. Let's empty out some of these ideas that aren't, aren't true. She said, God can, can't put new wine in the old bottles. And so I had a lot to unlearn, and I have time to mention only a few of them. But one of them was, and you were taught this too, God helps those who help themselves. He does not, you know. He helps those who ask. And the times I've needed him most desperately, I could not have helped myself if my life had depended on it, and it very nearly did. God helps those who ask. And I was taught mature people stand on their own two feet, solve their own problems. Did you get that one? And it's a sign of weakness to ask for help. 
And from you I learned that babies are dependent. They will die if we don't take care of them. Adolescents are independent. It's a necessary stage for them to go through. I'll do it myself. But mature and healthy adults are very happily interdependent. I'm assuming that you don't have visions or hear voices and that in your life as in mine, God works through people. That means I have to listen to you and I have to depend on you. And learning to ask for help was one of the hardest things I did, but wow, I did learn it. If I can't make it through the night in Texas, California's still awake, you know. And if California's asleep, there's Hawaii. I have friends who say in California that I only love them for their time zone. It's just that I have really learned that a lot of pain may be necessary for my spiritual education, but and I don't opt to be miserable anymore today. In fact, you told me I had a, rea- a right to and a responsibility for taking care of myself, and you didn't just mean eat right and get some rest. You meant taking care of myself emotionally, too. I have learned that some pain can be avoided. I don't have to die on every cross today, as I once thought I did. Okay, I was taught, put everyone else first and yourself last. Did you get that one, too? Yeah. And my sponsor pointed out that I didn't have to do that, and I said, you're not suggesting me first. She said, no, I'm suggesting my turn. And so for the last couple of decades, I've been able to say, hey, it's my turn to life, to people, to whatever, and to take my turn when I feel that it is. For a long time, I had a sponsor, a different one, who taught me that when I'm faced with a challenging or difficult situation, there are two questions that I need to ask. The first one is, what is in my best interests? Now, you can't ask that and be a martyr. And, you know, most of us who get into Al-Anon had suffered so nobly, you know, nobly. Uh, I have a friend who swears it required plastic surgery to remove her hand from her forehead when she got into the program. <laughs> but I ask today, what is in my best interest? And the second question is, what will enable me to like myself later? You see, I don't have to like any situation, but it is imperative that I like myself in it. And I, I use those. That got me through a very painful divorce some years ago. I don't regret anything I did or said. Oh, what a good feeling. And you gave me that, you know. I couldn't have done it otherwise. I was also taught what you don't know can't hurt you. What I didn't know nearly destroyed four people. What you don't know can kill you. So on and on, I had to re-examine my values up to that point, and I changed a lot of them, and I didn't want to settle for a spiritual band-aid. I became greedy for this program. I didn't want the crumbs when I knew there was a banquet spread. And I haven't, uh, I haven't lost that love of learning either. I began to learn some spiritual laws from you that I think transcend the man-made laws, It's much easier not to cheat on my income tax and to stay within the speed limit than it is to keep spiritual laws, the ones that say uh, I have to love you unconditionally with no expectations. But I can do that. As I told the group at our meeting today, I love you because I choose to, and you have no choice in it. And it's fun for me, and it won't hurt you. (laughs) So it it makes my life a whole lot more pleasant. I... uh, I learned that the worst immorality is judgment, and it is my biggest defect. 
I wish I could tell you it's gone. It's not, but I'm aware of it. And the reason I am is because every time I would say, well, you'd never catch me doing, you would. (laughs) And sooner rather than later, everything I ever said I'd never do, I have done. And uh, in recovery at that, and so now when I hear myself saying, well, in her place, I wouldn't, I think, no, no, wait, wait, I didn't mean that, you know. Don't give me that to handle. I don't want that situation to handle. <laughs> of course, you told me the basic Al-Anon teaching of releasing, detaching, letting go. What you said was, if you don't like the warts, let go of the frog. And I didn't like the warts. I didn't like the person I had become. I'm not basically a bitch nor a shrew, and I had turned into both of those by the time we got to you. I didn't like the warts at all. Now, I would have turned this man over to the Ku Klux Klan or the Communist Party or anyone that would have taken him. And my sponsor would say, no, 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 you release with love. You know, Once more with feeling, you release with love. It's still one of the hardest things I do in the program today. Uh, sometimes I have to release with anger for a while before I can release with love. And sometimes I have to withdraw emotionally for a while before I can let go. And everything I've ever released in my life has claw marks all over it. But I'm better at it than I used to be. I learned that God could work directly through my husband and children and those I sponsor. I didn't know that. I thought he had to come through me. I, uh, I was always willing to tell them God's will for their lives. But today I can listen to your feelings without trying to fix you. Sometimes I bite my tongue and sit on my hands, but I can do it because we don't give advice. When I heard that, I thought, how do we help anybody? (laughs) And they said to me, "Uh, what we can sometimes do is help people see what their available options are. Now, when I got to you, I thought I had three options. I could divorce Charles. I could live with him while we both tried to recover in our respective programs. Or I could have a close, warm, loving, communicative marriage. And I opted for number three, and it was not, I'm sorry to tell you, one of my available options. And any time I'm miserable today, I have opted for something that's just not one of my available options. And I need you to help me see what they are, and more importantly, what they're not. I quit translating. Did you ever translate? Now, honey, what your daddy meant was, yeah, sure you did. Um... I decided they could just slug it out toe-to-toe the best they could, you know. I will have to say a word about Alateen because my son and daughter were in Alateen for 10 years each. You see, during the drinking years, I had a choice. I could go or stay. Those kids had no choice. I would tell you, and I did if you let me, how much their father's drinking had damaged them. And I had a group that made me look at how much I had damaged them, and I thought I couldn't stand it. I would have died for them in a minute as you would for your child. I would never knowingly have hurt them. Two ways at least I'll mention. Until they were 10 years old, they were programmed by an enraged mother. They didn't know passed out. As far as they could tell, their father was asleep on the sofa, and what was this crazy woman doing yelling and screaming and throwing things? I would change that if I could, but I can't. And you told me that I couldn't recover until I learned not only to accept the woman I used to be, but to love her, because she did the best she could at her level of enlightenment. And I'm able to do that today. I harmed them worse by denial. 
When they would turn to this woman to whom they should have been able to turn for the truth under any circumstances, I would say things like, oh no, darling, you didn't hear that last night. You must have had a bad dream. I would say, well, what do you mean what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. And I submit to you tonight that kids brought up like that grow up doubting their reason, doubting their senses, and believing that people who love you will lie to you. If I had time, I would tell you stories of having all of us in the program. It was, it was a trip. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't have time. I'll just tell you that there'll be a special place in heaven. Well, when I'm in California, I say an especially <laughs> beneficial karma for those of you who work... <laughs> who worked to undo some of the god-awful damage we did our kids. For those of you who sponsor Elatine, God bless you, bless you, bless you. I um, heard you say I wasn't responsible for his drinking, and I was overjoyed, and in the next breath you said, on the other hand, you're entirely responsible for your own behavior. Now, I didn't want to hear that. See, next to an alcoholic, anybody looks good. And you had taken away my whipping boy, my scapegoat. If anything went wrong while Charles was drinking, I could say, well, if you know how I suffer, you know. And I couldn't do that anymore. People were praising him, you know, 30 days, Charlie, hang in there, 90 days, way to go. And they were suggesting rather bluntly to me that I could use some help, and no one had ever done that to me before. And so I was having a hard time with that part of early sobriety, and I was told, Blanche, you have been in emotional slavery. And I thought, how? What? And when they began to tell me, I thought, well, yes, if Charles gets angry, I get angry. If he's depressed, I'm depressed. Doesn't that mean we're close? <laughs> it was as if I waked up every morning and said to him, good morning, how do I feel today? Because it was up to him. Now let me tell you that he never asked for that. I handed this man my self-worth on a platter. I said, what I think of me will depend on you. And my group said, listen, you can take your sails out of his wind. And neither he nor anyone else will ever determine where you go again unless you give them that power. We're told never to say never, never to say always, but so far, I haven't given anyone else that kind of power. I take my sails out of their wind. You told me that God was the source and people were the channels, and it's all right for me to love the channel if I remember what the source is. It's uh, no one's assignment to make me happy, as I said earlier. I don't acquire squatter's rights on someone's life because I married it or gave birth to it. I didn't learn this program all at once, and I still don't have it all. But I learned what I do know slowly and painfully, incident by incident, one 24 hours at a time, and there are days when I say, what program? You know, God who? And I call one of you, and you will tell me Usually in words that I've given you, you'll say, well, as you've told me. <laughs> the reason I need to hear you say it is this. I can say to myself, and I often do, okay, what would you tell another Al-Anon in this situation? But when you tell me, under the words, I hear you saying, I love you, I care about you, you matter to me. And I don't hear that when I tell it to myself. In 1957, I crumpled a fender on a car, and from that day until last month, no vehicle I ever was driving impacted any other object on this planet. But I had a friend who said, meet me in Austin. If you have time to run into Denny's, we'll have a visit. Well, she didn't mean run into Denny's. 
I did. I didn't get through the wall, but I got through the retaining wall, the brick fence around it, and through a lot of the grounds. I have a beautiful still new Cadillac, and it broke my heart. And I am considered, you can ask anyone, a very strong, independent, capable person, but I go on automatic pilot, and you know what happens is your upbringing. And I picked up my car phone and I called a man. What you do when you have car trouble, you call a man, right? <laughs> and later I thought, I am so embarrassed. I could have called a towing company. Why did I do that? And the man I called said, because you needed more than a towing truck. You needed someone to say, are you hurt? Are you all right? And so that's why I need to hear these things from you. That's why I need not always to be so independent myself. You told me I don't have to be perfect. You said that practice made progress, and I'm glad to see that's finally in our literature because you told me that 31 years ago, and that recovery was progressive too. You said the weller we get, the weller we can get. English teachers are allowed to make up their own words. It's in our contract. (laughs) And I have relapses. And the one I love to tell about happened in Dallas. I was visiting my son, and... uh, I have had three kinds of arthritis since childhood, and I have a couple of knees that I can't always depend on, and we started down the stairs outside his condo, long flight of cement stairs, and uh, my knee gave way and I fell. It was a very bad fall. I was unconscious. I don't remember any of that. He called the paramedics who came and got me and took me to the emergency room of the hospital, and I came to just as they were lifting me out of the ambulance onto the... Uh, gurney in the emergency room in time to hear the emergency room nurse saying now just lay back and take deep breaths and I was coming out of total oblivion and I said honey that's lie back I will lie back and take deep breaths (laughs) I passed out again and when I came to I could not shut up I said you see dear you say it so many times every day you really must learn to say it correctly (laughs) my son had put his hands over his eyes he said she doesn't do this to total strangers usually really she doesn't (laughs) fortunately she thought it was funny but my point in telling you is that when my defenses are down that's an Al-Anon slip. I am going to straighten out the world, by golly, and I was starting with her at home. I usually tell people I don't correct anyone's grammar unless I'm paid for it, and you do not know the self-control and the restraint that that requires. So yes, I have relapses, and I, I talk the talk better than I walk the walk. You bet I do. And I walk the walk better than I feel the feeling. And now... Yet I, I, I live on the, on the growing edge, even as the newest person in the program does. And I need a hand to hold while I look around corners, you know, to see what's there. And I've never reached out that one of your hands hasn't been there. These children I have are fine today, I think. Thank you. And I mean literally thank you. Uh, they, both my children have been married and divorced. My daughter is a journalist. She works for the St. Petersburg Times. Florida was always her other home. Now, this is a very large, prestigious newspaper. You don't know that if you're not a journalist, and I'm not, but she has told me so. 
And they are award-winning and all those things. Last January, they sent her from St. Petersburg to Washington, D.C. to be a national correspondent in their Washington bureau. They pay her enormous amounts of money and value her highly, and I sometimes read her stories and think I remember holding that little dimpled hand when she was making her first letters, you know. And I am, of course, enormously proud of her. She is very good to me. She is loving and attentive and caring. My son is a commercial photographer in Dallas. Both my kids have won awards. and We are achievers. You know, we can't maybe sustain intimate relationships, but boy, we can get things done. <laughs> he has won two Cleos, which is the highest award you can win in advertising. He was the uh, first photographer on his own, not connected with an agency, uh, to win, and the first one outside of New York or one of the other countries in the world. And so the Dallas papers made a big, big thing out of it. But they never once put a comma after his name and said, the son of. Never <laughs> once. That's okay, because you had told me what the source is. And I might have been a channel, but I know where his talent came from, and it wasn't from me or his father. My kids have had not had to do any drugs or drinking. I have reared two quintessential caretakers, two classic enablers. They are drawn to dysfunctional people like iron filings to a magnet. My, my daughter says you can put her down in a room of a thousand men all dressed just alike, and if one of them is dysfunctional, she will find him. Why not? Her mother always did. You know? My son used to bring home hitchhikers. They would stay anywhere from overnight to a week. I don't know why we weren't murdered in our beds. But they are caretakers. They are also very much adult children of alcoholics, and uh, they have all the problems that come with that. In 1988, my son, who had been my most loving and affectionate child, the one who would send me flowers on his birthday and say thank you for having me, the one who would write to me on the anniversary of my mother's death and say, I think of my mother on this day too, this young man, uh, with no drugs and no drinking to blame it on, called me and wrote me rather and said uh, that he was withdrawing from the family, that he did not want to see any of us ever again nor hear from us. To leave him alone, not to write him, not to visit him, not to call him. I thought it would kill me. It doesn't. What you do with pain like that is that you get it to a livable level, you know? And I still take a day off every now and then and grieve. I don't know anything that hurts worse than the loss of a child. I would give a great deal to know how he is and what he's doing, but I try to respect his wishes. Charles and I lost our marriage for a variety of reasons that it wouldn't be appropriate for me to go into up here. But you had told me that marriages made in sickness don't always survive health. And I didn't want to believe you, but you were right. And our recovery was taking us down different roads and in different directions. And because people who love us want to know, he did not leave me for another woman. No, I, I would have killed both of them and you'd have a different speaker tonight. Uh, I didn't throw him out for another man, no. He did not resume drinking, no. He would have had 24 years continuous sobriety in July of 1988, but he died in April of that year. He died of lung cancer. Old cell carcinoma, still smoking four packs a day. 
I don't judge, I just give you information. And I, I was astonished at the intensity of my grief. We'd been divorced then for several years. I had no idea it would be so hard. But it, it was. It was. Nobody, back to the divorce, nobody wants divorce, okay? It's not in anyone's game plan. I had assumed that we would grow old together, put our teeth in the same glass on the nightstand, watch our children play, our grandchildren playing, and, uh, oh, you never met anyone who didn't want to be divorced more than I didn't want to be. But you had said I must go to any lengths for my own recovery. And it was like an amputation. You know, after a long marriage, it's like an amputation. It was necessary for survival. But the agony was intense. And there was phantom pain where the relationship used to be. We were not friends. I'd be lying if I said we were during and after our divorce. But there was no villain, okay? I mean, friends share feelings. Friends joy in each other's presence. If we could have done that, we could have stayed married. But no one was wearing a black hat. There was no one casting blame. You told me that suffering should not be wasted, that I don't back God into a corner, shake my finger in his face, and say, why me? I mean, after all, why not me, huh? But instead, I was supposed to ask, what am I supposed to understand? So that's what I began asking him. And uh, the answers come in slowly. If you love teaching, you do a great deal of counseling. And if you, if you love learning, you want to go back to school in times of stress. That's your harbor. That's back to the womb. Now, if you don't like school, you can't understand that. And, I, you know, I respect the fact that there are plenty of good people who don't. But people would say to me, I began, I began looking for a graduate school. And, of course, I found the longest, hardest master's program in Texas. It was at the University of Texas in Austin. I said to my children, this takes three years and a thesis. Do you know how old I'll be in three years if I go to graduate school? And my son said, how old will you be in three years if you don't? Well, no, no one had explained it to me like that. So I pulled up roots and I left my comfort zone. I left the house my kids grew up in and the school that I love so much. And you would have laughed to see me in graduate school. I kept wanting to teach the class. I had taught much longer than most of the professors, and I kept wanting to say, now, honey, what the professor meant was, you know. And <laughs> I also wanted to correct their grammar, but I don't do that when I'm conscious. <laughs> so, I did get the degree in counseling psychology in 1985, and I worked part-time at Austin Community College, which is all over everywhere in Austin. A community college, you know, stretches out with campuses everywhere. When the rent began to come due pretty regularly and I was self-supporting through my own contributions, I knew I had to go to work full-time. So that's when I went out into the country and became a counselor at this wonderful little school. Now, I didn't leave the college entirely for five years. I taught one class a week there. It was a class in human sexuality. It has to be taught by a counselor. And it was interesting being interviewed for it. I mean, how do you ascertain that someone is qualified to teach a sex class? You can't uh, claim that you majored in it in college, although you and I know people who tried, don't we? <laughs> Let me tell you what I think got me the job, and I could not have even asked for it except for what you had taught me about being who I am. They said, how did you learn about sex in your family of origin? 
And I told them very truthfully that I had an aunt who was the matriarch of our family. And she used to say to my mother, when it's time to tell Blanche Marie the facts of life, you better let me do it. You'll make it sound entirely too exciting. (laughs) Well, my mother told me, thank you. One thing about a sex class, unlike the kids in my English classes, these students never said, what are we learning this for? We'll never use this. (laughs) They never argued about the relevance (laughs) at all. Change is very hard for me, but I'm going to have to close by telling you of some changes in my life. It really is hard. Uh, my first week on my job as counselor, well, see, counseling and teaching are different, and it was a hard switch to make. But a mother called and said her little boy, six years old, first grade, was having trouble on the school bus, and she asked if I would see what was going on. So I called him into my office, and I said, tell me what happens on the bus. Well, he said, those kids pester me. I said, "Uh uh-huh, what do you do? Well, he said, I don't say dirty words. And I said, I'm so glad. What what do you do? Reached over and got my tablet. Now, very laboriously, tongue between the teeth, he wrote down H-S-I-T. He said, I wrote that down. I said, "Uh uh-huh, then what? Well, I showed it to them. I said, yes. And he said, well, they couldn't read it. Well, I was a fire horse hearing the bell. I said, honey, you didn't spell it right. That's why they couldn't read it. Here, let me show you. This is how you spell I was crossing the T before I thought, oops. I thought, this isn't why they heard me. They didn't say in my job specifications, teach obscenities to six-year-olds. I've always hoped that when he got home that day, no one said, what did you learn in school today? (laughs) But I did learn. I made some changes. I learned to counsel without teaching, and I made some other changes. Uh, I had not known I would like living alone, and I did, and I was alone for 11 years. I went, see, originally I went from mother and daddy to a college dormitory to mother and daddy to a husband. There had never been a day in my life that I could plan without taking into consideration someone else's schedule, someone else's wishes. My daughter had said to me, you'll learn to like it, and you'll think a long time before you give it up. And I did. I liked it. I have to say this carefully. I am not young, and I have never been beautiful, but I like men a lot, and I have all, there have always been men kind enough to care for me. And during that time, there were friendships and relationships that I wouldn't have missed for anything. I just am so grateful. For, but anyway, I've been hanging out with Bob Miller for a while. And about once a year, we would talk about getting married. And whoever brought it up depended on the other one to say, oh, hey, things are good the way they are. You know, We don't have to do this. <laughs> it was, I remember, Halloween night in 91. He didn't live in Austin. And uh, so we were talking on the phone, as we did every night by then. And I said... Well, we were talking at lunch today. Sometimes I step outside my program for just a minute, and I stepped out to do a little managing and controlling, and I I said, Bob, you have your 25th AA birthday coming up in five weeks. Now, that's a biggie. Let's do something really special. What would you like to do for it? And he said, I think I'd like to get married. Well, it wasn't his turn. I want you to know that. Before I could say anything, he said, I've talked to my A sponsor. 
my three children, my lawyer and my accountant, and they all think it's a good idea. Now, is that romantic or what? Could you turn down a proposal? I said, well, let me talk to some people. If I were 20, you'd have sworn I was pregnant. That was the most hurried up wedding you've ever seen. Bob said if he hadn't insisted we do it on that day, on his 25th day, birthday, that I would, have did, I would have done what I always do when I'm making a decision. I read 10 or 12 books about it, and I write extensively in my journal, and I talk to 10 or 12 people, and he said, then you would have backed out. I didn't have time to do that. And we were married on December 7th, 1991. Bob was a very ardent Episcopalian. I grew up Southern Baptist. I've always thought Episcopalians were rather aerobic, you know. Uh, Stan, sit, Neil, stand. Sit, Neil, stand. And I was so awkward, but I managed. I got through, <laughs> I got through it. He, uh, that was December. We bought a house in a little quaint historic village. I'd love for you to come see it the village and me, in February of 92. And in March of 92, Bob became ill. And in June, the doctors told us his illness was terminal. And I grabbed you with all, both hands, you know. I hung on to you with my fingernails. And for the next year and a half, he was bedridden. And uh, he died in December of 93. I wish you could have seen the people at his funeral there was the bank president and the tattooed bikers, you know, <laughs> the Rotary Club president and the kids who worked for Bob. And, oh, I felt so loved and so surrounded by your strength because I had none of my own. I've learned a few things about grief, and this is the last thing I have time to tell you. But I want to tell you that in my, in my experience, it first felt like fear. And I don't know why. I have nothing to be afraid of. But if it hits you, just know that you weren't alone. And then I uh, told you I'm considered fairly capable and managed pretty well, but I began to go the wrong way on one-way streets. And I, I stopped at stop signs and waited for them to change color. And I made $1,200 worth of mistakes in my checkbook, not in my favor. And I was addled. And that hurts my self-image a whole lot. I hope it was grief. I hope it's not my psyche, you know. I used to do a great deal of grief counseling. I still do. I've always, or for years, I've done volunteer work with hospice, if you know what that is, and in a counseling kids who had lost members of their family at school. And I would say to them, look, if your arm were broken, it would be in a cast. People could see it, and they could think, you know, he's hurt. He's a little fragile. Uh, we need to cut him some slack. But if it's your heart that's broken, no one can see it. And no one makes any allowances. And I said to them, the kids, when this happened, so you have to do two things. You have to be very gentle with yourself. And you have to tell people. Tell them, I'm not at a good place right now. I'm feeling pretty fragile. You know, cut me some slack. So that's what I tried to tell myself. I also said to them, if you had a terrible physical wound, while it was healing, you would be very tired, and you would expect to be. 
Well, I would tell them an emotional wound has to heal too and it takes energy and you're going to be very tired. So I began to tell these things to myself. The day Bob died, I was talking to him that morning and he said, it's time for me to go. And I said, uh, you fought this a long time. He died of hepatitis. I said, if, uh, if you're ready to quit fighting, I'll understand. And he said, I don't want to leave you. And I said, you won't ever leave me. But I said, it's really hard to say goodbye. And he said, yes, there's only one thing harder. And I, of course, said, what is that? And he said, never to have said hello. And everywhere I've gone since Bob died, I have said to the people there, please say hello. You know I'm not talking just about greeting someone. I'm talking about reaching out your hand and being available for other people. If God had said to me eight years ago, you can have this really neat guy in your life for eight years and that's all, I would have said I'll take it. What if I'd never said hello to him, you know? And so that is my plea to you, that we not pass each other like ships in the night, that we reach out and say hello. I'm going to close with an Al-Anon promise. This is from our literature. <laughs> and it says, today this very moment is all you're sure of. And that flashing instant has gone to join the past before you're aware of it. With this dizzy spin of time, the only safe way you can make each moment count is to make Al-Anon responses habitual. You can't go wrong following Al-Anon's teachings. With them, there's no regret for yesterday. There's guidance for today, and there's hope for tomorrow. So that's the promise with which I leave you on this beautiful fall night in Gillette, Wyoming. I can promise you no regret for yesterday, and guidance for today, and best of all, hope for tomorrow.